Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business Podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey there, it's your host, Brandon Laws. In today's episode, I have a discussion with Rick Thomas. He's a business advisor and partner at Pilot Wealth Management. They're in Portland, Oregon. He's also a returning guest. Last time we talked about brand promise and what it can do for your business. So go check that out. It was a good episode. Rick also recently launched a podcast called The Idea Revolution. So he'll be hitting the airwaves with his own podcast show. Uh, We'll put a link up to it so you can go check it out. But in today's episode, Rick ran across an article on Medium written by Eric Jorgensen on why growing past 20 employees is so damn hard and what you can do about it. And I really, really enjoyed this discussion with Rick. I thought it was a lot of fun. And this article is great. So we'll make sure to put a link up to it. But we kind of put our own spin on it and and talk about a lot of points that the author makes. So uh, without further ado, here is the discussion with Rick. Hey, Rick, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. Hey, Brandon. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. So I was pretty excited. About a week or so ago, you found this article on Medium called Why Growing Past 20 Employees is So Damn Hard and <laughs> What You Can Do About It. I love that title. And it's it was on Medium and it was written by Eric Jorgensen. So we'll make sure to put a link up to that. I, I think the titles, it's obvious like what this article is all about, like which is why growing past 20 employees is challenging. And like there's yeah. all these headaches that go along with it. But I want to back up real quick. What about companies that are, you know, a small team, like 10 or less? Right. What does that team look like versus 20 or more, which we'll dive into? The title caught my eye and it's related to your question because invariably what I will eventually hear from the various organizations that I work with, especially the small ones that are growing, the common complaint is we're becoming too corporate or how do we keep from turning into this corporate whatever and lamenting that, you know, this used to feel like a family and it's not a family anymore. I mean, I hear this over and over and over again. And this is why this article really caught my eye. And as I read through it really resonated. And back to your question, you know, contextually to a company that is, let's say, 10 employees and less and over 20 employees is the identity for most businesses under 10 is it truly feels like a family. I mean, you are working shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. trying to grow the business and often doing things that nobody ever expected they would have to do just to make it work. Whereas in a 20-person company or much larger, you now begin to have fairly defined swimming lanes. You know, if you're in product engineering, you actually get to do product engineering and not have to clean the toilet or figure out how to sell a product or something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the simplest answer. You mentioned it feels like a family and partly because it, it might be. It You might hire your friends and family when you're a few people starting up. And I think it's pretty common. But once you start 
hiring outsiders, it, it doesn't feel like that anymore. Yeah. But also the, you know, the shoulder to shoulder comment. I think a lot of times when you're in growth mode uh, and when you have five, 10 employees, you're probably working 16 hour days and you're doing everything from, yeah, cleaning the toilets all the way to, you know, balancing books and doing marketing. I think everybody has to pitch in a different level. It is. It's, it's amazing. I mean, for anybody that's gone through a, a growth curve from a small business to a medium or a large one, they look back on those, those times when it was small, uh, with nostalgia because when you're working that hard side by side with those kind of hours, you see the best and worst of people both of your colleagues and yourself, actually. And it's those times that actually define the really cool memories, for most people at least, if the business you know, gets beyond that phase. Frankly, this could be an entirely different podcast discussion. When people talk about how it's a family here, that's a huge red flag. Because frankly, I have yet to meet a family that is not dysfunctional in some way. <laughs> a family model is not a good role model for a business to type itself after. But again, that's an, that's an entirely different discussion. And I think like what makes a smaller company really interesting is that a lot of times when you're when you're that tight you often are living and breathing the same mission yep. and values. And when you start adding to that team, then it, it gets a little dysfunctional unless you're still you know, around that mission. And, and a lot of times when you bring in outsiders, it just doesn't feel that way anymore. So I think, you know, we'll talk about that later, but I think that's where leadership could really help, you know, redefine the mission and continue to articulate that so everybody's aligned because otherwise it can get just completely. And, and let me add one more thing. One of the things that is much easier to do when you're a small business under 10 people is when you add somebody to the team that isn't a fit, guess what? It is very obvious. You experience it, you feel it in multiple ways and in, in, in scenarios. And it's like, okay bad hire, bad decision. We got to do something about this and move on. The larger the organization gets, the more difficult it becomes to be that clear around whether this is a good hire or not. The author, Eric Jorgensen, of this particular post, he put together a really nice illustration of what it's like between the social networks of a 10-person company. So how many one-to-one relationships are there in a 10-person company? And that's 45. And how many are there in a 20-person company? And it becomes exponentially larger. It's 190. So talk about that illustration and just really what that means. The geeky engineer part of me loves what he did. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a great illustration. He used something that comes out of uh, network communications called Metcalfe's Law that describes the exponential nature of networking nodes or relationships as the network grows. And he applied it to the interpersonal relationships that grow exponentially in a growing business. I thought it was a beautiful analogy. But absolutely, I think about in my own experience, just from working as an individual, you know, I was, I was off consulting as a kind of a, a lone gun for hire for about eight years before I joined with Nick and Jason at Pilot back in 2013. And even just going from myself to having two other people that I need to consciously think about, okay, who did I say that to and did I communicate it to both guys? I mean, it's challenged me at times. It's like, well, I thought I communicated that when in fact I haven't or I only communicate it to one person 
or in the wrong context or whatever, now multiply that by 10. Hmm. And all of a sudden, you, you begin to get an appreciation for the complexity that builds in communicating you know, what needs to be done or why we're doing something or if it's a policy or a strategy, how complex that can become. I think that's why organizations tend to develop hierarchies. Like the author pointed out, like when you have a 10 person company, you're a lot of times working side by side. So you're very, you're very flat. But when you have a 20 person company, it just becomes so much harder to have these one on one relationships that you need managers in between employees and the founders or the senior leaders. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's so incredibly necessary. And by the way, the hierarchy that we know it as today comes from the military model. And his name escapes me, it, it, but there was a French military commander that created the hierarchy that has been adopted in most global businesses, but at least certainly in the U.S. in terms of this hierarchy of generals to commanders to lieutenants to sergeants. To, we follow the same model in business. And it's not just because it was convenient, it's because it worked. And it was an efficient way to communicate the mission of the organization and what needs to be done and what is priority. Now, does it go off the rails? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But it is a very efficient model. The author pointed out that when once the hierarchy really starts to take shape, you know, you add a new layer of management, people start getting hired above early team members. And even mentioned that the founders oftentimes will spend less time with non-management, which ultimately means that some of those those early employees that are just doing, you know, contributor work. Right. They often don't feel like their voices are being heard. From your opinion, like what kind of problems can arise from that? So now, now we're talking about kind of the underbelly of what happens yeah. when it's not understood uh, the implications of creating this hierarchy. Let me take a little sidebar here. Yeah, of course. One of the laments that I hear more than anything else from the owner operators, CEOs of the various organizations that I work with as the organization has grown and, and created critical mass, and especially if this, if that person is a founder, one of the laments I hear the most is, I don't know what my role is anymore. <laughs> uh, it's got to be a terrible feeling. <laughs> it is truly. And everybody is looking from the bottom up going, dude, you know, you killed it here. Go off and enjoy life. And they're like, well, no, I'm part of this organization, but yeah. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And what I continually tell them is your time should not be spent so much in those executive team meetings. You've hired smart people mm -hmm. to drive and manage the business. You're there to oversee strategy, but as much as anything, your job is to make sure you're having interaction at the very front line of the business to make sure that they are drinking the Kool-Aid of the mission of the organization. And there is no better person to communicate that than the founder or that key leader that you know holds the vision. They hold the crown jewels of the vision. I couldn't agree more with that. I actually ran, ran across a graphic yesterday that one CEO had put together a pie chart about how he spends his time. And it was, you know, talking with customers. It was instilling the values and trying to build the culture. It was even taking part in recruiting people that fit their culture. And it was just, it was interesting because it was, everything was about talking with customers and making sure that the right players are coming into the company so that it's not, you know, destroyed. 
there's that cheesy reality TV show called Undercover Boss. Yeah, I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, it, actually, it, I, I poke fun at it because of the whole reality <laughs> TV thing. But, you know, the, the goodness in that is it demonstrates what happens when those key leaders get on the front line and start working side by side, then the people around them are ultimately impacted in a positive way, assuming the leader gets it and that they have a true appreciation for what it's like to be on that, you know, call center call or or doing the work that whatever the front line is doing for that particular business. And now for a quick break to talk about Zenium's third annual What People Want From Work survey. Are your employees happy at work? Here's one way to find out. There's nothing better than open, honest, and anonymous feedback, which is why Zenium created the What People Want From Work survey, which is open to employers of all sizes for free. This 20-question employee survey reveals what people really want from their workplace, and it provides insights around leadership, workplace culture, management support, rewards and recognition, and work environment. Employers can sign up for free June 20th, 2017 until July 31st, 2017 at zenimhr.com. And the link is in the show notes so you can get right to the page. And now back to the program. So we talked about the leaders and how they can really start connecting with people to make sure that they're not totally disconnected. But what happens in in regular contributor level jobs when you're from a 10-person company, now you're 20 or or more? What really happens to those jobs? Because they do fundamentally change. Absolutely. So, I mean, Eric does a great job of explaining what happens when the organization grows. It becomes more about the specific skill set for that particular role. So we go from being utility players. You know, let's say I am in product engineering, but in a small business, that's not the only, only hat that I wear. I may play several roles within the business. And so my value is as a utility player. And as the organization grows, it becomes more about what's the particular skill set as a product engineer that I bring. And can I lead that team of product engineering? So that evolves. Now, one of the things that that he doesn't talk about that's so important for leadership to communicate along with, hey, this is what's happening. We're growing. And this is what's going to happen to your role as it evolves is reminding people why we're doing this. Why is growth necessary? It's such a simple thing. And I think leadership assumes that everybody gets why we want to grow. And oftentimes people don't understand why are, why are we taking this on? Because growth in many cases means more work or more problems as opposed to just enjoying the benefits of, of the larger organization and what that scale can mean. So regrounding people in that original vision and mission of why that growth is important. And then the other, the other thing that, and I'm kind of going off of your question a little bit, but <laughs> that is so important for leadership to understand is not everybody is going to get there. And this is probably one of the most difficult things that leaders and founders have to somehow accept is that it may be that it was one of those people in that original three or five person company that you fought shoulder to shoulder with and and laughed and cried and spilled blood with that ultimately cannot evolve with the business. And either they will self-select at some point, but sometimes they won't. And it just becomes a bigger and bigger obstacle for the business for that person to figure out how they fit in 
And it's the job of the leadership to identify that. And if they can't ultimately evolve with the business is to exit them. Eric pointed out the social structures that starts to be created within the company as it, right. as it grows. Talk about that. Yeah. That was, so, that was fascinating. <laughs> as I was reading, so he's talking about what happens is, you know, you kind of get these echo chambers that begin to happen of, you know, the people that have uh, the longest tenured employees in the organization begin to chat amongst themselves about, hey, it just feels really, it sucks around here. It feels really corporate. It's not like it used to be. And then the new people are like, um, you know, how come nobody's telling me what I'm supposed to be doing or where we're going or it doesn't seem as collegial for them as it does for the original group. And there's multiple other aspects to that. Reading through that reminded me of my manufacturing days. And I think it's just human nature to do this, that in any group, people will begin to point out the differences rather than the similarities. And one of the differences in manufacturing is you've got the carpet people and the concrete people. <laughs> and the carpet people are the people that are in the offices with air conditioning. And the concrete people are the ones that are out in manufacturing and mm. they usually don't have, have air oh, conditioning. No. And they're actually doing the work. You know, and you name it. I think it's just human nature for subgroups to point out the differences. And this really points out another kind of huge implication for leadership is to really challenge that and you know, call it siloing because you'll see siloing in departments, but even within departments, you'll see siloing based on their experience. I mean, he even talked about siloing between seniority levels, opposing strategies, personalities, and all these little micro little divisions can happen. It's like, how do you get control of that? One is you have to accept it's just going to happen. It is, yeah. Because this is human nature, but it also kind of underscores the implication for leadership that you have to continually challenge those microcosms within the organization for how are they connecting and relating with each other. And you don't do that by sending out an email. You don't do that by creating a policy. You do that by getting down into those microcosms as the key leader and saying, okay, you know, what's going on here? And what about that group over there? And how are we helping them onboard and learn about what's going on? And how do we leverage some of their experience that they're bringing from outside the organization and how we can evolve? as the, let's say, the tenured group, or whatever that microcosm may be. And the author spent a lot of time talking about how like, there's a snowballing effect of complaints and culture can get destroyed if you really don't hold that together. I mean, there's a lot of good things that come from growing, right? And right. it's not all bad, wouldn't you say? No, not, not at all. I, I think a lot of this points at the temperament of leadership just to, A, not ignore it, while at the same time, be not totally indulge it. Yeah. And sometimes it is kind of a tightrope walk to say, okay, how, how do we allow people to kind of vent what they're experiencing without letting that drive the agenda and the direction of the business? That requires that leadership is kind of getting perspective and getting out of their own echo chamber. And it just seems like a leadership should really open up the lines of communication between those employees to, to be able to vent and to be able to restate like, hey, this is what, you know, this is what we believe in as an organization. You either get on or get off. 
you know, it's okay to vent once in a while, but I, I think like if they give them that outlet to say, oh, here's a, a little survey we're doing, or you know, we, we continue to reaffirm where we're, we're going as an organization, and here's why we're doing what we're doing. Right. I think that might help some of that, that those negative things that come out. I, those can help. But my bias is there is nothing that can replace face-to-face communication. Sure, yeah. Now, let's talk about that because it, it can be challenging in an organization that is, you know, 20 plus people. How can you have that kind of communication? So one of the mistakes I see made the most by, let's say, the CEO of the business is they'll go to an all-team meeting and they'll talk. They'll just talk. Yeah, talk at them. and They'll talk at them and they won't allow any exchange. And even if they do allow for exchange, oftentimes they'll get this kind of uncomfortable silence. And so they'll fill the space. And that just takes time to create trust that you are willing to listen. And so one of the things that I counsel CEOs that I'm coaching is be comfortable with silence. Just sit there. Just sit there. And eventually, somebody's going to say something and ask a question. Now, now it's about a matter of how do you kind of draw that dialogue out? Yeah. I met a guy, this is a few years ago, and he is a emergency captain on a freight container that travels back and forth between China and San Francisco. And I was curious in asking him, how does he manage that ship? And Interestingly enough, it's no different than any other business. He said, if you didn't look out the window, you wouldn't know that you were on the open ocean. He's got a desk. He's got seven unions that he has to manage. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And so I was talking to him, how does he handle communication in the all-team meetings? And he rolled his eyes. He called him the free swim, right? <laughs> and, and the free swim referred to the point in the meeting when he had nothing left to communicate because he dreaded it because he knew there'd be a million questions. But being willing to open up the room to the free swim. And to an organization that doesn't have that in their culture, it takes some time. Mm. But then it's a matter, once it starts coming, is how do you manage that so you're not taking on the task of having to solve every problem? Because that's not what it's about. It's about giving people a voice is what it seems like. And it seems like a lot of beautiful things yes. can happen from that free swim is you don't even know where it's going. And that's, that's the great thing is, and I'm sure it makes them anxious as a, you know, a CEO or a leader who has to actually, you know, answer some of those questions or deal with the head on. But that's why you get paid the big bucks, right? Exactly. And, and nobody likes uncertainty and nobody likes to be challenged actually, but it's a healthy thing. And you can have boundaries on it, but, you know, anyhow, you know, back to how do you manage that balance between no communication and just dictating, you know, how things will go and indulging every complaint and getting kind of caught up and wrapped around the axle around everybody's issue that may be important, but isn't really what the organization needs to be working on from a, from a strategy perspective. There's a way to balance that. But it's got to, it starts with the willingness of leadership to open it up to that free swim and to not feel like they have to solve every problem, but give the opportunity, as you said, to have a voice. And that's in an all-team meeting, the free swim. But what are some other ways that leaders could connect more with either smaller groups or individuals to give them that opportunity to have that voice? 
so the other one, the other kind of axiom and is the good old fashioned MBWA management by wandering around. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, there's two <laughs> schools of thought on that, whether it's good or not, but I would love to hear your perspective. I, nothing's perfect. I'm an advocate of it for a few reasons. If you go back to that networking diagram that we talked about in the article, yeah. that when you make a connection with one person, it has a networking effect, mm. good or bad. If you have a bad one, guess what? It's going to multiply. It's going to snowball. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but conversely, if you have a great interaction, that will also have a networking effect. Now, the key is don't have it with the same person every time. You know, management by wandering around means that you're actually going to go into a department that you wouldn't normally go into every all the time or or seek out a new employee or whatever that may be and allocate a part of the day or a part of the week towards having one new conversation that you haven't had before. I love that idea. And yeah. it, even more so, it can be about what their experience is in their role or whatever, but make it about nothing to do with work. That builds, as Covey used to refer to as the trust bank, and building that trust bank with the employees, and it does have a networking effect. So you don't have to do it with everybody, just don't do it with your favorites, but do it with a, a very cross-section of people within the organization. And that will begin to build that trust and relationship beyond you know, the ability to connect with every single employee in the organization. Eric kind of wrapped up the article by talking about like how you can become, and there's like a kind of a list. There were a bunch of tips on how to become a better startup leader when you're in right. terms of growth. What were some of your favorites from that? So I think in fact, he even highlights this in the article mm. is work hard to be empathetic. Yeah. And empathy is such a key component of emotional intelligence. And as a leader, the necessity for that attribute in a leader's kind of profile becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, today, as a matter of fact, in today's news, the CEO of uh, Uber just stepped down. Yes, I read that. There is a huge gap of empathy in his leadership profile. Yes, there were. Everything <laughs> I've read about that, not, not so pretty. And to Eric's point here, you have to work on that to be effective. You have to work on that to have a, a healthy organization. It can't always be this you know, hardcore, uh, kick-ass, grinding company. It may seem like you can get a long way, but that will not sustain. At some point, that will hit a wall. And I think it goes into his next point. He says, make an effort to keep the company feeling like it's one team. And I think the empathy really drives that. Yeah. To feel like you're part of something, you're part of a team, and that you do anything for the, the guy next to you or the, the woman next to you. It's right. You have to be empathetic as a leader. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to end up like Uber's past CEO. You know, he, he also talks about, he makes a comment about quietly coach and work with those who are unhappy mm -hmm. and ways to create a smooth transition. In my estimation, that is a very Pollyannish. Can you do it quietly? I think people would probably catch on after a while. You know, I, I think perhaps you could to ensure a smooth transition. I think the outcome is subject to two things that need to be present. One, a willingness for the leader to engage and coach. And two, the willingness for the employee to evolve and invest in themselves in maybe nothing more than a willing to believe that things will work out, even though they may feel insecure or uncertain about where it's going or 
not sure where they fit in. And I have never experienced a time when you could wish that for somebody and it would happen. They have to wish it for themselves. I've often said to employees in the past when I, that I was managing is, look, I can't believe in you more than you're willing to believe in yourself. Mm, yeah. I mean, I could try, but that doesn't get us anywhere. You have to be willing to believe in yourself as much as anybody. And I can believe in that. And together we can do something that will be really important here in how you evolve in your role. So that, that's the only part I would challenge about his statement there. So Rick, let's wrap this up and put a bow on this for us. So how can a growing organization, one that they're adding headcount, they've went from 10 to 20, more, how do they get ahead of those issues that come with an increasing headcount? Because they, they will happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is so easy in a small organization to be so absorbed by the work to not step back and say, hey, are we facing these issues organizationally? And be willing to ask the question before you think it's happening. Because if you wait until somebody says something, it's already been happening for a while. You know, my biggest takeaway from a leadership point of view is begin to ask the question now when you think things are going well, because you're probably already sowing the seeds of this kind of discontent, but you don't know it yet. Good stuff, Rick. All right, Brandon. A fun discussion. This has been Rick Thomas, our guest on the podcast. You're welcome back anytime, Rick. Hey, thank you, Brandon. Let's do it again. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc., for more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.